Hello. Hello and welcome to the Betsy, Betsy Boss, Boss Podcast. <laughs> welcome back. We are here with a special themed episode because it's Halloween for a wonderful episode that is Halloween themed and more aptly mischief night theme. Yes. Oh, okay. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I have a whole little section in our notes about this. Oh, same here. I can't mm-hmm. wait. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you don't know what Mischief Night is, I know we have listeners all over the country and really all over the world. I think we've got a yes. nice group in Ireland, a nice and group Australia, in Australia. Which is so cool to see. So like, exciting to I see. I never had any idea somebody would be listening all the way over there. Yeah. And honestly, if you're one of our listeners who's international, we would love to hear from you. Yes. And please give us a shout out. We will say your name on the podcast if you send us a message and just say, you know, hey, I'm a listener and tell us where you are from. Uh, We just, we love seeing all the different countries represented, all the different, even states um, across the United States, which is really, really cool. So we're just loving seeing our listener numbers go up every week and Mm -hmm. um, it's, we're really gaining our footing, I feel, and enjoying this podcasting experience. Yeah, I think we're finally starting to get going now, because technically, this is actually our 30th episode, if we include our premiere. Yes, happy anniversary. Well, let's Uh, wait till we get to 50. That'll be the big Exactly, exactly. And then we'll do the one year, but um, Yeah. yeah, so it's just, it's an exciting time. We're really getting our footing, and I think hitting our stride on this, which is just so much fun and so exciting to see. We we get more excited every week. I think I speak for both of us oh, when I, know. I say that. <laughs> sending, um, sending things back and forth like, oh my God, look, we have somebody from here. Oh my God, look how many people are listening. Yes. Like, oh, it's so cool really thrilling. Yeah. yeah, we love it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, since we do have listeners all over the country and all over the world, we wanted to go over what Mischief Night is because- yes. It has a lot of different names in different places. And um, in some countries, I suppose they don't have it at all. Well, in some states, they don't have it all. Right. Like the majority of the United States and so many other cases, or I mean, podcasts or, you know, shows or whatever that cover this are like mischief night what i don't i've never heard of that so which is so funny like we always have had mischief night because regionally philadelphia falls within the mischief night framework so right in there yeah exactly and it's us along with jersey new orleans um kind of parts of eastern pennsylvania which is also where we are delaware parts of new york state and Mm -hmm. connecticut um and that's where it's sort of called mischief night um, in some parts of North Jersey specifically, it's called Goosey Night I know. <laughs> or Devil's Night, yeah, which is terrifying, yeah, which is way. also Detroit too. That's apparently what a lot of places in Detroit call it is Devil's Night. Right. And it was called that, I guess, initially because arson and vandalism throughout the 1980s ran rampant on this day that falls the night before Halloween. So October right. 30th. It's kind of amazing how <laughs> there are also citizens who take it upon themselves to kind of be the neighborhood watch and go of down course. through the streets to make sure of people course. aren't hey, setting fire to stuff. Meddling kids. You are meddling kids and your yeah. dog. <laughs> and for that reason, it can also be known as Angel's Night as opposed oh, to I Devil's Night. Okay. Mm-hmm, which is kind of funny because all these volunteers are out there patrolling the city 
Then we have Niagara Falls, Ontario, which from the 50s to the 60s, it was called Cabbage Night. Which is so funny. Hilarious. And basically what people would do to cause mischief that night in that traditional setting was to raid local gardens for like gross, oh, rotten cabbages. I was wondering where this came from. Okay. Right? It's so nasty. It's such a weird... And then you <laughs> use them to make mischief around the neighborhood. Uh. So it's still called as cabbage night, even if, you know, cabbage isn't being used. Yeah. And the parts of the country, our country, that use that along with Ontario, Canada, is Vermont, Connecticut, some parts of Connecticut, mm-hmm. Bergen County, specifically New Jersey, <laughs> which is <laughs> so crazy. Weird. Upstate New York, oddly specific, (laughs) right? Newport, Rhode Island, and Western Massachusetts. So I don't know if it's because French settlers came there. I know. I'm thinking of like the old cabbage gardens or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And then I had just a final or a couple of other um, names for Mischief Night in um, New Hampshire and British Columbia, Vancouver, Winnipeg. Thunder Bay, Ontario, Bay City, Michigan. Again, very specific. Again, so specific, so random. Rockland County, New York, North Dakota, and South Dakota. It's known as Gate Night. And it's called that because apparently the gates of hell open the night before Halloween. Well, can I just say all I can think of is Halloween Town where the portal is only open. Like, exactly. The end of Halloween or whatever. That's so, so. true. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, and then there's also Matt Night in English-speaking Quebec, Ooh. which God knows where that came from. Yeah, but... maybe they steal like the, the entry maps to the door. Yeah, I maybe <laughs> like because you're playing Ding Dong Ditch or whatever. Who knows? Who even knows? Do you yeah. have any others? I do. So I have two more. Um, so first of all, I should have looked up why they call it this, but I think it can be kind of inferred. Um, in the case we're going to cover, they call it actually Hack Night. Um, just in that location. I thought they called it Mischief Night because in a lot of Me episodes, too. I looked through some of the documentation and they specifically, like in interviews, called it Hack Night. Oh my gosh, because you get your body hacked up. I guess. <laughs> oh God, pretty much. They could, should call it Golf Club Night. Um, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm awful. Um, and then the other one, I thought this might actually kind of be my favorite. They call it Moving Night because yes. they exchange or ex- or steel porch and other outdoor items in Baltimore, Maryland, which Classic. I thought was kind of funny. So. And it's hilarious that it's in Baltimore, which is definitely somewhere you'd expect to get your porch furniture stolen. <laughs> yeah. No it's offense. Like, is it moving night or is it just Tuesday? But. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't have to even fall on the 30th of nope. October. Nope. Yeah. But yeah, we just wanted to give everybody a little flavor of what Mischief Night is mm-hmm. and, um, you know, whatever definition you go under and if you've heard of it at all, just the idea that it's a silly night where teens particularly go out and kind of make trouble. And it's yeah. all in good fun for the most part. It's yeah, like, it's not malicious. Yeah, it's like teeping trees. That's or what like, I was going to say. Well, so I was going to ask you, did you ever go out for Mischief Night? I don't think so. I feel yeah. like we were too sheltered to go out. Well, I didn't, but my brother actually had a couple friends, and he wasn't even a teenager. He was probably like 10. Oh. Um, snuck out with his friends. He had some friends over and um, took toilet paper and toilet papered our neighbors. And then my mom yeah. found out the next day. It was not too thrilled. But Oh, look I, out. Yeah. But I do remember always, and even my sister actually asked me this last year here in Philly, 
But when we were growing up, we would always take in our pumpkins or whatever the night before because we were afraid they were going to smash the pumpkins. Yeah, that was never a common happened, thing. but okay. Never happened. But yeah. you know what? I did see a lot um, coming from Mischief Night is the smashed mailboxes. Oh, yeah, that's true. I do remember that vaguely when I, I want to say we were littler when that happened. I don't think it, I don't even know if yeah, Mischief Night really recently. happens anymore. Truthfully. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's for like the, I think my parents would kill me. If oh I my God, I know, I know. Oh my God. But yeah, so that's what Mischief Night is. And this story, tonight's story, centers around Mischief Night in 1975. Yeah, think about that. It's the 45th anniversary coming up. uh, Yeah, it sure is. Not too long here. It's so true. And, you know, this story also centers around a 15-year-old named Martha Moxley, Mm -hmm. who was really anxious. She was like us. She sounded like a good kid who just was really eager to go to Mischief Night. and well, Unlike us then. Uh, well, unlike <laughs> us. Yeah, we didn't no, care know, either I way. Know. I would rather just stay in and eat candy, Same. let's be honest. But um, yeah, so she was really begging to go. And unfortunately, her mom let her go. And she met her fate yeah, out real, there during the Mischief Night. mischief there. Exactly. Yeah. So just maybe giving a little background about the Moxleys themselves. So... Um, they're first of all living. It's 1975, like you said, leaving living in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. This is one of the wealthiest areas in the whole nation, mm-hmm. and they're living in this neighborhood called Bellhaven, which was about 40 homes on the coast of the good old Long Island Sound. Delightful, um, great area, and the family had really moved there from San Francisco just about a year earlier, about 18 months, I think it was, that they had been there. So about a year and a half. And like you said, Martha was very bubbly, very, you know, outgoing, friendly, and really made friends very quickly. Um, Her father, David, was a managing partner at one of Manhattan's most prestigious consulting firms. And her mother, Dorothy, was a homemaker. So Martha was 15 at the time, and she also had a 17-year-old brother named John. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Yeah. And now if you're picturing their home, I mean... Any you're probably, of these homes. Oh yeah, God. any of these homes, you're probably picturing something way too small because Martha's yes. home wasn't just a house, it was an estate. It, it 100% was, yeah. And, you know, that honestly plays into the story in a big way because if you think of just a traditional house with a small yard of maybe, you know, up to an acre, right? you're just, you're not picturing it right. No. It is a huge sprawling property yes. um, with probably just a ton of gorgeous um, gardening type accents and trees and yeah yeah. beautiful things so um, you'll want to kind of keep that in mind as our story unfolds and as we discover where Martha's body was finally found yeah but before we get there do we want to talk about how the evening started that night Yeah, so I guess get into October 30th, 1975. So just to give you a marker of where all the family members were. So the father, David, was um, away in Atlanta on a business trip. Dorothy was at home and she was actually painting trim, or that was her plan later on in the evening, to paint trim in um, one of the upper rooms in the family house. And John, the older brother, was out with friends. And Martha herself wanted to go out, like you said, for mischief night. 
Mm-hmm. And she was actually grounded um, yes. for doing something stupid like the week before. <laughs> right. And her mom, you know, normally wasn't that big of a stiff apparently, but because of the grounding, Martha was kind of, you know, not begging. Well, easily yeah. yeah, allowed to yeah. go and she had to beg for it. Um, so finally, Dorothy gave in and said, all right, Martha, you can go, but you have to be back by 10. So we're at 6.30 p.m. Uh, Martha went out with friends. She had the classic egg soap and shaving cream. <laughs> but then at 9 p.m., they actually ended up at a neighbor's house, the Skakels. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting family. Yes. Um, <laughs> so we have Rushton, who is at this point a widower with seven children, six boys and one girl, the poor girl. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, would not want to be in that position. But... Um, they were, everybody knew this kind of rumor, or not even rumor, this fact, and um, they were Kennedys is how people kind of referred to them, because his sister Ethel married Bobby Kennedy, so they became Kennedys. So it's 9 p.m., they get over to the Skakels, and Martha is greeted by 15-year-old Michael. They stayed in the house for a short time, and then ended up going out to sit in the car parked in the driveway to listen to music, which, like, Cool. How seventies is that? Like, right? You can't even imagine. It is. Oh my gosh! And that's your mischief for the night. Yeah. Okay. Cool cool times. Like living it (laughs) up. Um. But then older brother Tommy Skakel, seventeen, joined them in the car. In the car, it was I. I believe it was like Tommy, front seat. Tommy, Martha, Michael, and the back seat were her two friends, Jim and Helen. Um, and we have Tommy kind of putting the moves on Martha there, putting her, his hand on her leg. She, they were kind of flirting back and forth when he kept putting her, his hand on her leg. She pushed it back, pushed away his, his advances and was kind of like, Mm-mm, nope, not into yeah, not it. tonight. No. So then at nine fifteen, so they weren't in the car for too long. John and Rushton Jr. Skakel and one of their cousins came out and told everyone, hey, you got to get out of the car. We uh, have to take our cousin home. So they all get out of the car. And Michael, again, the younger brother of the two that were in the car, uh, 15, said, hey, I'll go with you guys. And he wanted, he invited Martha to go and said, hey, do you want to come, come with us? And she, she said no, because again, it wasn't too far from her curfew. And it, maybe she just wasn't interested, truthfully. Exactly, which it sounds like based on her diary, mm. which comes in later, um, yes. that she probably wasn't interested and was trying to avoid any advances being yeah. made on her. Yeah, not interested. No, thank you. I'll give you a hard no thanks on that one. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a no for me, dog. Mm, no. Um, so at that point, at least this is kind of the like general story that's kind of out there, at least timeline wise. 9.15, the car pulls off with the boys. 9.15, 9.30, they leave. Martha's other two friends, Helen and Jim, who she had met up with her, with earlier in the night, start to leave because um, Helen, I think, actually had a 9.30 curfew. So they started walking away. And these are all kids kind of from the neighborhood, like right nearby these houses. And so they're all walk- walking distance. Yeah, very much walking distance. Like this is probably the good old times that everybody says about like, you know, just be back by the streetlights. Right. The streetlights are on or whatever. It's like that whole thing. Um, and so they were walking away. Um, 
And so about that was about 9.15. And then initially back, you know, when all this went on, Tommy had said that he left Martha. He last saw her when she was walking off around 9.30 mm-hmm. because he went inside. He had a report on Abraham Lincoln. Yes. You know, the a typical <laughs> report for a 17-year-old Naturally. on Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, what about it? Like, why did you not, why would you not push him on like, oh, what about him? What, right. Like, like, just generally <laughs> Abe Lincoln, you're just supposed to tell us oh. who he was and what he did. Yeah. Like, I okay. mean, that, that sounds like a fifth grade project. Cause I know we had to dress up as like, I was Susan B. Anthony. We had to make a weird little like. Oh, <laughs> nice. And I'm dress jealous. Up someone. Oh, it was weird. It was weird. Yeah. But, so Tommy, yeah. but you know, um, yeah, he had to write that Abe Lincoln assignment and he watched a movie with their new tutor who, I guess it was his first night on the job. What a first night to have. God. God. Um, but yeah, he apparently was watching a movie and writing about Abe. Honest Abe. Yes. Well, he was dishonest Tommy because sure was, (laughs) this was they eventually the police did check at least initially, um, and said that, the teacher said there was no such assignment. Yeah, they couldn't find a single nope. teacher to validate that um, nope. alibi. We're um, not even teaching American history in this grade. I right. <laughs> we're teaching the history no. of India. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're on the India chapter now. Unless Abe made a trip there, I'm not sure why. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. At this point, now we kind of revert back to the Moxleys. Again, Dorothy was up there painting trim around windows in the bedroom. As one does on Mischief Night when you're a parent. Casual, and you also live in a multi-million dollar estate. Right, but don't hire somebody to do it. Do it. She was a real DIYer. She was. Well, it was funny because one documentary I watched, um, they were like, oh, she bought a fixer-upper in Bellhaven, if that even could be a thing. Right, if that's even possible because it was such a prestigious area. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, come on now. Um, But at that point, so it's, 9 30 between 9 30 and 10 she's up there and she said that she heard voices kind of a commotion not sounding like full adults maybe sounding like teenagers not yelling screaming but kind of like kind of like talking excitedly kind of talking loudly enough that she it caught her attention mm-hmm. it made her stop what she was doing and look out the window and she couldn't see anything so she was like oh I don't know it's mischief night you know who knows? Yeah. yeah. Kids but are she, out making trouble. Right. Yeah. Like who knows? It's, you know, this neighborhood, she knew her daughter was out doing the same type of thing. So, um, there were lots of dogs barking. She said that night too, which was yeah. kind of interesting around that same time at nine thirty. Yeah. This time to me, I think we're going to keep that time that the half hour in mind. Cause to me, I think it's an important time frame. but, mm-hmm. um, so she stopped painting at that time. She was like, all right, screw this. I'm done. <laughs> Getting late. Yeah. I'm done. I'm, I'm over it. Done. I'm out. <laughs> and she went downstairs to the TV room to wait for her kids to get home. Also, because like you said, Martha, you know, she was kind of stricter on this uh, curfew now after Martha got in trouble for missing cur- curfew and stuff like that. So it gets to, so again, Martha was supposed to be home at 10. She's not home at 10. Dorothy's getting a little, few little pissed off. She's not the happiest, but and not nervous yet. No, not even close. Not even close. I mean, no. she might have gotten a little scolding slap on the wrist because 
first of all, you got in trouble already. Yeah. You're already I let you, you know. out. You had the bag. And now yeah, you I'm already this. watching you extra close, but yeah. you know, now you violated the cardinal <laughs> rule of curse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I can imagine, because I feel like this happens sometimes. Like the parent, like she's probably mad and the older brother, John, comes home. His curfew was at 11. He made it home by 11. And his mom told him that Martha wasn't home when she was supposed to be at, a, at 10. And she's still not home now. Mm-hmm. And John, being a typical older brother, was actually glad that for once, Martha was the one getting in trouble. Right. And he was the first one home. So <laughs> yeah. he looks like yeah. a million bucks. Golden comes child. out smelling like roses. Exactly. Right. He's like, all right, Bob, great. Don't care. Going to bed. Bye. Yeah, as long as you're mad at Martha, not me. Peace. Yeah. yeah. I'm done. So um, she waited up, still not home after midnight. And this is when she actually started then really getting, not really getting worried, but getting more concerned. So she starts mm-hmm. calling the neighbors. And, you know, on that chain of neighbors, so it gets to around 2 a.m. And at this point, nobody has heard from Martha. Nobody knows where she is. Um, She still isn't home. And Dorothy is pretty panicked, I would say, at this point. Oh, sure. And so she calls over to Martha's BFF, Sheila's house. And, you know, she says, where's Martha? Like, is she over at your house? She said that she didn't know where Martha was. And after that, um, she also told Dorothy that Martha was at the neighbors, the Skagel's house um, for a period of time, but that she probably wasn't there anymore. And, you know, that was it. Didn't know where she went after that. So, of course, Dorothy called over to the Skagel's house right after that and talked to Tommy Skagel, who also didn't know where Martha was. So Dorothy actually wakes up um, John not too long after that, at her son, at 3 a.m. Obviously, he did not worry at all. He just went fast asleep, right? So she wakes him up and says, Martha's still not home. Can you please go out, drive around, see if you can find her? He comes back around 3.45 a.m., still couldn't find her. Yeah, so at 3.45 a.m., um, Dorothy is like, that's it. I'm calling the cops. And three cops come to the house and they start the search for Martha immediately with Dorothy. Mm. Yeah. And it's not a great search. It's not the best search. And (laughs) a lot of you true crime junkies will note that it's weird that the search would have begun so quickly. It's usually 24 to 48 hours. Especially then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And so usually you have a day or two that pass before the investigation even gets initiated. But in this case, it started very quickly. And the reason for that is that this is such a rich, swanky area of Connecticut. There is no crime virtually. And so this really piqued the cops' attention. And they right away put together this missing persons report for Martha and start working on the case. And at this point, Dorothy is like losing it. So the cops tell her, listen, you got to just get some sleep at this point. With any luck, Martha will be back in the morning. And at least then you won't be completely sleep deprived and crazy. As if she could get any sleep in that state anyway. But so at 10 a.m. on Halloween day, Martha is still missing. And Dorothy is beside herself. She calls another of Martha's friends, Helen. And Helen says, listen, I'm not with her, but I saw her on mischief night. I was hanging out with her. And the last time I saw her, she was leaving the house next door, Tommy Skakel's house. Right. So remember, this was 
like we had said, this was one of the two friends she had gone out with, left the Skakels around just before like 9.15, 9.30 and saw her with Tommy. Exactly, before the friends parted ways. And Dorothy at this point bops right over to the Skakels house and, you know, knocks on the door, starts rapping on the door and little brother Michael comes to the door. Uh-oh. Okay. And there's, you know, a camper outside. Dorothy says, maybe Martha's in the camper sleeping. It sounds like she's still not as concerned as, you know. I, I don't blame, like, like you were saying, though, with it being the 1970s and police investigation and stuff. I'm not surprised in a gated community in such a nice security. Place. Like, yeah. yeah, like, even though you're tearing your hair out, maybe at this point she starts thinking, okay, you know what? She was at the Skakel's house. It's yep. safe there. They probably have all kinds of security there oh. because they're Kennedys. Right. And, you know, she's probably just like passed out, you know, in yeah. their or, little camper. Or she's like trying to sneak back in the next morning or something. Yeah, undetected. In trouble. Like, exactly. Yeah. And those teenagers can sleep forever. I mean, <laughs> my gosh. As can I, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a talent. Uh-huh. Um, so she says, all right, maybe I can peek around in the camper. Michael brings her right over, says, sure. And they look around the camper and there's nobody in there. So eventually this kind of angry mob forms that is made up of the Greenwich police, Dorothy, and this growing group of neighbors who are like, we're going to find her, freaked out and like, let's go find her. They have their torches and pitchforks (laughs) and they're ready to go. So this mob is slowly accumulating and gaining more power by the second. Yeah, so the the mob is searching all about, and our girl, Sheila, she obviously wants to join in on this uh, search. She's a neighbor, too, so she's about 12 p.m. that day on Halloween. She's cutting across the Moxley's yard to come up to the house and join the search, and as she cuts across, she passes this large pine tree, And lo and behold, on Martha's own property, she finds what she believes is Martha's body. Mm -hmm. Obviously, freaked out. She runs inside. Dorothy's in there with some friends. And she tells Dorothy that she thinks Martha's out there and that she doesn't think it's good. And luckily, like, I can't imagine this situation, but the friends, luckily Dorothy had the friends there who said, no, you stay here. Don't go out there. Yeah. Yeah. Don't see the body. We'll do it. We'll go out and see if it's Martha. They go out, went to identify her and they came back to the house and said, yep, it's Mm -hmm. Martha. But it was indeed her. Yeah. Yeah. And granted, you know, this is 200 feet from the house, but this is an estate. Yeah. It's a big property. Lots of trees. Big trees. Yeah. Lots of kind of wooded area. Um, So she was on the ground. Her jeans and underwear were pulled down to her ankles. Mm -hmm. The back of her skull was beaten. She got stabbed in the neck with a broken golf club. And this golf club becomes a critical piece of evidence down the road. Yeah. Um, Now pieces of the club are scattered all over the place. And of course, as luck would have it as or wouldn't have it the piece that might have been the most useful Mm -hmm. which is the grip and would have maybe contained some fingerprints or some form of dna is nowhere to be found yeah and so the cops come to this scene they see the club and they determine okay this is a six iron and it's made by tony penna yep and i think maybe before even getting because that this is like the critical item of evidence 
but her body too. And my God, these cops are just not doing well. Kind of useless, mm-hmm. which is, you know, to be fair, there has not been a murder at this point in Greenwich in 30 years. Yeah. So think about that. That was 1945. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is the end oh, of the, you know, World God. War II. So yeah. we're in a whole Seriously. different era at this point. They probably are just completely stunned. They, there wasn't even anybody in Greenwich to do an autopsy. Mm, um, this is major. This, this is, is major. major. So they had to call in the Connecticut State Medical Examiner. And yeah. ugh, it's just, it's crazy how ill-equipped they were to handle this. Yeah. So at the scene, again, like you've said, like the, the blows to the back of the head were so bad that when they found her, it was so bloody that, so she was a blonde. But mm-hmm. it was so soaked in blood that they couldn't even tell what color her hair was. Yeah, they thought she was a redhead. Oh. <laughs> so gross. I, oh, is that a joke or not? No, no, I heard that in one report. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is awful. But So gross. Ugh. Oh, yeah. So uh, what happened to, and this, this I want to say now. So let me just, just give me, it's going to take me a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of this stuff I tried to piece together from reports that came out later, not in the 1975. So bear with me on the details and where things are kind of put in here. But um, so she was beaten so badly, they couldn't even tell which wound actually caused the death. Horrible. And there are drag marks on the lawn, which we'll get into later. Um, There also was the possibility, I don't know if there actually was the possibility, but like you said, with the underwear and the pants being pulled down, it could have been a sexual thing. Who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, you'd think about that. There was also a smudge on the inside thigh, um, one of the in- her inside thigh, as if somebody tried to kind of like open her legs, which is mm-hmm. awful. And <laughs> here's really though where the police screwed up majorly. So. Yeah. The officer was so panicked when he saw the scene that instead of using a telephone, as was typical protocol, he went to the police car and called it in over the police radio. Well, especially back then, the media had police scanners and are waiting for, you know, to get the scoop. Mm -hmm. And so they swarmed the property. And before the police were able to even, you know, kind of coordinate off and secure it like they should have. There were at least 12 people who had kind of trampled all over the scene. It's not all over it, including, yeah. yeah, including a couple dogs, apparently. Yes, I saw that which too. Crazy. Oh I mean, this God. is not how you want to find a crime scene. Like, you want a pristine picture of as yeah. close to the incident yeah. as possible. Close it off, keep people off, tell them no, no, goodbye, go home. Yeah, get out of here. Exactly. Yeah. But instead, it was like pretty much open season out there. It, it definitely was. Yeah. I think, I, I think like what you said, one of the biggest issues was that the state medical examiner couldn't make it until the next day. Yes. And so given the temperature, so I even looked at the temperature that night and it was probably in like the forties. Um, so it ends up kind of fucking up the body, like the decomposition rate and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So because he wasn't there right on the scene when they found the body even, um, he really wasn't able to give a great timeline for the death. Right. And, you know, they did their best um, and the police did their best to kind of bridge the gaps where the medical examiner 
um, fell short and tried to figure out, okay, what's the timeline? What happened last night? Right. Um, and so since Martha was at the Skakel's house and since she was last seen there with Tommy, this is where they went first. And they figure out that the only person that was there watching the kids on Mischief Night was their new tutor, Ken Littleton. Mm -hmm. I mentioned before, poor guy, worst first day of work <laughs> ever. God, I don't Literally think, I don't think you can have a worst first day than this You can't have a first worst day. <laughs> um, Rushton, who's the father, as you mentioned, is out on a hunting trip, of course. Yes. But he returns right away. As soon as he hears his family is being questioned, he races back home. Tommy and Michael, like we said, um, I think we alluded to this earlier, both have alibis um, mm, for the yeah. period of they time did. when Martha was, you know, probably killed. Michael yes. was away from home visiting his cousins, and Tommy said he was home by 9.30. He watched a movie with the tutor, and then he wrote his Abe Lincoln paper. <laughs> right. Now, again, honest Abe, dishonest Abe, you know, Michael's alibi checks out perfectly. Tommy's doesn't totally pass the sniff mm -hmm. test. They can verify that Ken watched a movie with them. But again, they go to all the teachers. They say, who's the one who had the Abe Lincoln assignment? Not a <laughs> one responded back. Oh, it was the fifth grade Skakel child. It's <laughs> the other Skakel because there's seven of them. Ugh. Tommy got confused with his own brother. Mm -hmm. um, so Tommy is looking a little bit bad not terrible you know but why would yeah. he lie um and but he really looks bad when yeah. the cops start searching the house and what do they find but a set of tony penna clubs in the house the same brand of club that stabbed martha and wait for it one single club is missing which one guess which one it was the six iron no uh yeah, but the, cr the crazy thing about these golf clubs, though, or how they found these golf clubs is they weren't able, they, I think they probably held the Skakels in high regard in this community because they're very wealthy, related to the Kennedys, didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't get an official search warrant to actually search the house. Right. So they got Rushton's approval, and that's how they found the clubs. But the only way they found the clubs and why they didn't take the clubs with them is because they didn't even go in the house themselves. They asked the oldest daughter, Julie, right. to go ahead and search the house for Which, them. Which, of course, there's no conflict of interest there. It's just your family no. who's being searched. Not it's your family who's being accused, who's on the line. And obviously, you're going to provide a completely, you know, impartial situation, completely oh my God, impartial, she like, <laughs> search. Yeah, she, she might as well be a lawyer herself without the qualifications. Come oh, on. completely. Yeah. Um, so, again, just the ineptitude of the police is highlighted once more. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing about how it's so easy to write this golf club off, too, because, again, this is, like, the key item, really, in this case. Mm -hmm. The smoking the gun. Yeah, the smoking golf club mm -hmm. is that the the Skakel kids apparently would go outside and hit balls around all the time and just kind of throw these golf clubs on the lawn. So very much reasonable doubt that hey, anyone. Yeah, exactly. Could have picked it up, you know, walking around and going yeah. to that, commit that crime. 
Right. It doesn't limit it to just the members of the household. Nope. Now, granted, I mean, the Skakel family was the only family in the area that had this type of golf club, <laughs> um, which it's pretty you know, specific. Mm -hmm. but... <laughs> and the club on top of that is engraved with the name Ann Skakel, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is the name of the late mother of the family. Exactly. So, you know, it's very clearly theirs. It's obviously, you know, from their household. But like you said, it doesn't totally nail anybody in the no, household no, I, because the yeah. kids, I mean, talk about rich, like privilege over here. They're swinging these crazy expensive throwing golf clubs around the window. Like that's okay. like me dropping my bike on the driveway at home. Yeah. Like. Right. Like, oh, I just throw around my Rolex when I am bored. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh my gosh. Find so, it tomorrow. Oh, it's crazy. Um, so like you said, too, the police are kind of at this point confident that Tommy did it, but they don't have any other physical yeah. evidence linking Tommy to the crime. Nope. They polygraph him, and the first test comes back inconclusive. Mm -hmm. Test number two comes back clear. He was not telling lies. Well, he's <laughs> not telling lies. <laughs> but I do want to say, as everybody else who knows follows these cases, polygraphs are not admissible in court. And right. you can pass them if you're so a sociopath. They're not scientifically backed up. So you can kind of put some faith in them, but not a ton, because it's very much up to the pol polygrapher as far as the analysis of the responses. So, right. Yeah. So the, kind of the only other suspect at the time, well, first of all, they really thought, and I can see why they thought this, that this was probably an outsider that committed this, because especially at this time, they're going to be like, these are a bunch of wealthy families. How could anybody ever be so horrible? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it, Tommy was the last one to see her according to kind of the initial story, but, and the, and the golf club was engraved with their yeah, mother's name. Yeah, that's not name. the best. <laughs> but hey, like no way these Kennedy related family members could do this right yeah so, granted politicians are often the most corrupt of all but who's counting yeah we've just learned so much in the last like 10 years about how much all of this thinking was incorrect but right okay. whatever um but the the other suspect at the time which just kind of makes me laugh so there is a 26 year old grad student who lived next door to the moxley's and I guess it was maybe in kind of one of those over the garage situations where he was renting an apartment or something like that. And his window actually overlooked the tree where Martha's body was found. And he had interacted with the Moxleys before at some parties, some neighborhood party stuff, something like that. And everybody apparently thought the guy was really strange. <laughs> Isn't that classic? Guy. Like, well, there was this weird guy that came to a party once. He must yeah, be him. He was weird. He knew I introduced myself. He knew our names. Like, it's he must be the murderer. Be yeah. <laughs> so the police obtained a search warrant for the little home he was staying in. Found nothing. He also passed a polygraph, which we just talked about. But um, he was cleared in that regard. So these were the two. So it was, you know, they kind of looked at the tutor. They looked at Tommy. They looked at the neighbor at the time. And then getting into the next year, 1976 in April, they, again, after clearing the uh, grad student next door, were kind of circling back to Ken Littleton, the tutor at the Skakels. And he was a teacher and a coach at the Brunswick School, which was 
mainline style. Yes. And, yeah. An elite prep school that both Tommy and Michael attended. Good God, kill me. Yes. Um, <laughs> All too familiar. Very, yeah, very familiar. So like you had kind of said, Rushton had hired him to be the family's live-in tutor, and it was his first day on the job, <laughs> which is just the worst first day ever. And he really had, after that point, after the murder, and again, like everybody says after the murder is if it's connected, but you just have to think timeline-wise, the Skakel kids could have been terrible. Exactly. So he stayed for several weeks after that first day, began drinking heavily. Which, um, can you blame him? Yeah, my God, living with seven kids, six oh my boys God. who are clear terrors and their father's always away. Like, Yeah, first of all, that's already a Von Trapp situation. Secondly, seriously. somebody got killed your first day. Right, and, and looking the kids at you're it. watching are being accused. You're being accused. Yes. I mean, how do you whew, not hit the bottle after that? Yeah, yeah. So pretty much um, from that time on, you know, it, he failed a polygraph at one point in October of 1976, which also, I don't know, just me, it was taken on October 18th, 1976, almost a year later to the event. Yeah. So you're already going to be kind of stressed. And you don't know how don't much know. credence to give, you know, I, I those don't, yeah. polygraphs. I, in general, we kind of look at them as just yeah. not being particularly reliable, really not, not being great evidence. So no, um, no. take without what you will. Yeah, exactly. And so from that time on, pretty much he and Tommy were kind of the, the prime suspects, but there was really nothing, you know, to tie him. And it kind of went cold from there. And from there, we have a long gap before the case is looked at again in the early 1990s. But we are going to come back and revisit kind of the second half. Yep of this incredible, crazy case next week. So tune in next week for part two. Um, hopefully you're all at the edge of your seats and ready to delve into what happened over the course of the next several years. Yeah. And I just got to say, because I've followed this case or known about this case for years. I think it was like the A&E, whatever that episode was, the A&E crime documentary from way back when in the day was my first introduction to it. So I've known about this case, but haven't really delved as deeply into it as I have the you know past week or so. And to me, the next part that's coming up is the most interesting. So yes, tune in and uh, hopefully you'll learn some new information if you already know about the case. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, our Instagram and Facebook are at Betsy Boss Podcast. Our Twitter is at Betsy Boss Pod. Our website is BetsyBossPodcast.com. And if you'd like to email us, we are at BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.